So uh, the last confrontation, Jesus is going through a series of things. Uh, the the you know birth growth of Jesus ministry, and then reaches you know the peak in popularity of the ministry, and now he's in the persecution and, and the decline, as especially the religious organizations are are uh, you know filled with this hatred and animosity toward him. Uh, he's in the final week. He's approaching the cross, and uh, a great deal of conflict is. Uh, in everything that he's doing at this point, uh, the all of the religious organizations uh, are uh, on their own and collectively uh, attacking Jesus and trying uh, to uh, dismantle him, his teaching, his popularity, his credibility, everything they can. The last uh, confrontation, of course, was... Uh, where they came to him and said, should we pay taxes uh, or not? And uh, he corrected them in that situation, you know, saying, render uh, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, uh, that are God's. Uh, very much pertains uh, to the things that transpire following. Uh, that idea of, uh, you know, he asks, whose inscription, whose image is on this coin. And um, uh, it's interesting uh, because the way he words it is uh, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he makes the same statement of give back to God what is God's. We bear the image of God. We were created in his image. And so our lives belong uh, to God, and, and that uh, ties in heavily to what uh, transpires following. So verse 18, then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, and we'll look, but uh, they, they don't believe in the resurrection. They are um, more described as being moralists. Uh, they're interesting because uh, they largely, it's a generalization, but they largely only held to the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were very focused and concentrated on that. They they had some respect, don't you know, think that they didn't understand, no, but they, they really were focused on those first five books, and that's where they focused the entirety of their, we would say, religion was on those books. And as such, uh, they rejected the concept of resurrection, uh, and which plays into <clears throat> the, the confrontation between Jesus and these people very strongly because, oh, you want to stay in the first five books? Okay, let's do that. You know, they, you know they're, they're taking the position, oh, resurrection comes uh, from the book of Job. It comes from Isaiah. It comes from these other locations. We hold to the first five books. So, so Jesus said, okay, well, let's, let's fight inside your ring. If that's where you want to do it, then that's what that's what we'll do. You know, preachers commonly say they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad. You see, so it's you know a way to remember uh, what group we're talking about and and what their premise and where they're coming from. So they they ask him, saying, "Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind, it leaves no children." His brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So this is uh, what we 
today sometimes describe as the Leverite marriage uh, coming from the book of Levi. And it was very significant for uh, the tribes, for the people to retain the inherited land that had been given to them. So God imparts by lot the, the, the entire nation of Israel. So everybody has their given portion, and that is to be theirs, uh, I was going to say eternally, but at least permanently. How about we say permanently? Um, uh, so, so they could lease the land out, but it was to return uh, to them. So they retain ownership is the idea. And uh, the concept is that if a uh, woman was to be married and not have a child, then the portion that would have been given to her husband or already belonged to her husband uh, would not come to her, not pass to her child. So uh, the next available brother was supposed to marry her and have a child with her and thereby uh, the land and the property would stay inside the family bloodline. So when it came to engagements and marriages, uh, everybody got involved, you know, because if, uh, you know, somebody was considering marrying a person that, uh, you know, someone else considered difficult, you got to consider like how that might affect you uh, later on in, in life. So, so uh, here they, they stage this premise of, you know, this is, this is the law. And, you know, basically what they're saying is we're going to proceed forward is surely God uh, did not intend uh, for this to be the way that, you know, they're implying the way you describe is what they're saying. So they ask him, teacher, Moses wrote that a man's brother dies, leaves his wife behind, leaves no children. His brother should take his wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now, there were there uh, seven brothers the first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. Uh, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife uh, uh, will she be? For all seven had her as wife. So they're, they're strictly focusing on... The resurrection. I think the bigger problem here is, you know, how is this woman preparing meals? Really, I mean, if if seven husbands have died, probably, you know, somebody should be calling law enforcement at this point to consider what's going on. And and how stupid do you have to be as a brother to go? Sure, I'll marry you. You know, say, you know, one, two, three, five brothers have passed away. I'm busy. I have no time. I can't. I just I'm celibate really is what it's all about. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's there's a consideration. So people ask stupid questions. Okay, they really do, and you know they create trickery in the in the circumstance. Why? Because they don't want an answer. Okay, they have a preconceived notion, and they're coming at you to try and make a fool of you. That that's what it's all about. You you'd be very wise. You know we we have this culture that long ago started moving towards tolerance, right? That, that, that is, oh, that's the key feature. Everyone must, everyone must have this exemplary attitude of toleration. And if you don't, if you're, if you aren't completely tolerant, then somehow that, that, I mean, that's the only ultimate sin. 
you know, so this concept of there are no dumb questions, you know, okay, when you're dealing with your children and you're trying to rear them and you want them to have a critical thinking mind and, you know, yes, okay, let's ask the questions and let's, but, but there is, uh, you know, regarding our faith and uh, many things like under that, there are stupid questions. And our culture right now, I mean, you know, should we, you know, make criminals pay bail? Yeah, yeah, you know, really you should. And, and criminals should, uh, you know, be incarcerated and lots of things. Should we have police forces, you know? Yeah, yes, yeah, we really, these are, these are dumb questions. That our that our culture is is entertaining and allowing and and look where we are, you know look at look at the things that are going on all around us. So here they come and they pose this very constructed question. This isn't a literal thing. Uh, this is a thing that they've put together in order to uh, try and trip Jesus up. So Jesus answered and said to them, "Are you therefore?" Not mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures. Now, look, that's you've got to understand, um, you know, how much of a, just a slap in the face that is. The these men are so studied in the Word of God, it's crazy. You know, especially the Sadducees in regard to the first five books of the Bible. Uh, for the most part, if if they're part of this. Group, they've memorized the first five books of the Bible. They can quote it to you from heart and have great uh, lengthy discussions, at, well, discussions, arguments uh, with you about these things. So when Jesus says to them, you don't know the scriptures, <laughs> that, that, that is just, you can hear the air get sucked out of the room. You know, they're just so offended by, oh, what? You know, they can't believe that he would dare say a thing. And he even goes further. He puts a few more layers on that insult as we move along. So very often, you know, Jesus is thought of as being extraordinarily tolerant and kind and, you know, thoughtful and careful. And he's not always, you know what I'm saying? He'll reach right out and cuff somebody upside the head, uh, you know, uh, verbally and let that, and then he just, Oh, I didn't mean to do that. You know, he, he lets it just hang there. Uh, you know, when, when the crowd had been fed five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people, you know, and they show up the next day for free lunch, right? And they're all feigning like, oh, no, we, you're just the most amazing teacher. That's why we're here. It's just we can't, we can't even believe the sermon that you taught yesterday. And he said, no, you're, you're here for free lunch again. And no, that, no they act like that's insultive. And he said, well, if you're staying for lunch, uh, then the menu is my flesh and my blood. And they go sick and they begin to leave. You know, cannibalism, what is this? This is outrageous. And they just, they storm off. And he doesn't run after them going, no, wait, you misunderstand. I was, I was foreshadowing communion. I mean, you know, he doesn't give any of that. He just lets them crumble in it. Why? Uh, look at the difference between them and the disciples because they come and they go, this is a hard saying. What are, I mean, what are you talking about? And he says, do you want to leave also? Right. He doesn't even back off. Oh, let me apologize to you, my followers. 
You want to leave also? He's thinning the crowd purposely. And they, you know, they, they say, no, you have the words of life. We have to stay. Uh, so it is uh, with Jesus in the way that he handles these situations. He, he attacks when it's necessary. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You know, they, they denied uh, the spiritual realm. Uh, you know, no angels, no demons, no miracles. Why are you even in the faith? Uh, wh I mean, what is this about? No miracles? You believe the first five books of the Bible. Did you not notice the parting of the Red Sea? Did you not notice the plagues that came upon Egypt? Did you not notice, right? How about in the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth? Well, how is it that you know, so many people do this with the Word of God? They take the word and they go, I believe this, and I like that, but oh, I'm not so much into that. I don't really care for this. I, I don't like the way that that's said. So, you know, I really don't think God is what, well, really, who cares what you think? I mean, is God what he claims to be? Is the word of God what it claims to be? Does the word of God say these things? Well, that's what you've got to wrestle with. That's what you've got to contend with. It, it isn't about you. God, God eclipses everything else. Uh, you know, we've got to subject ourselves to uh, God and who he is. So here uh, they begin this whole process. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Uh, but concerning the dead that they rise... Have you not read in the book of Moses? So do you see where he's at with this, right? Have you not, have you not read in the book of Moses? you got to understand one more time, right? They've memorized the books of Moses. Apparently you've never read the book of Moses. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is just as insultive as it possibly can be. He knows this completely, thoroughly about them. And yet this is his assault. On them, you know, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am, and, he, and that's the focus, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken, right? Present tense, uh, these uh, oh, uh, here, I, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been long since dead. And the Lord in the burning bush with Moses is declaring them as being alive. Present tense. I am presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are alive is what the Lord is declaring. Look, <clears throat> so very often uh, people misinterpret the scripture because they don't pay attention to the detail of what's contained in it. Um, you know, you look at Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, he was a man who in his youth was in massive conflict with the churches from his community. As, as a, uh, an early teen, uh, he didn't believe the things of the scripture. He didn't follow basic Christian doctrine. His father was diametrically opposed uh, to Christianity and had taught his son that great conflict. And so there was always this argumentative, combative uh, approach. He'd been 
uh, under church discipline and eventually was put out. He went and formed what eventually became the Watchtower Society, ultimately the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, His departure from that, uh, his doctrine, he didn't believe in the Trinity, his doctrine was so different. We've talked about this recently. Uh, He rewrote the Bible, right? Because John 1 Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then verse 15, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. uh, Speaking of Jesus. So Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It so emphatically teaches that Jesus is God that he rewrote it. You know, add a comma, change an uppercase to a lowercase so that his book uh, now reads, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. Right? Minor little characteristics of the scripture tell us tremendous things, and we should pay attention to them. We should be very serious students of the scripture. Uh, The beautiful thing is, right, we don't have to be genius. There's a long list of spirit-filled geniuses previous to us, and we can derive from them. Their learning, their gleaning, and then the Holy Spirit continues the work in us and speaks to us also. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, There there is much to study and much to learn about the Word of God uh, given to us by those who have preceded us. Jesus here, uh, you know, the, the those that have passed away are not dead. They are the living. They, they are in the presence of God. Then one of the scribes came, and having uh, heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well and asked him, which is the first commandment of all? So this discussion that he just had, um, you know, there is some debate about, You know, do angels procreate? Uh, You know, some people say uh, that they don't even have the capacity uh, physically, uh, that they're not male, that they're not female. Uh, You know, this this scribe hears this discussion and he understands that it's so all-encompassing and it's so disarmed the uh, Sadducees that he's going to pose his own question and, and derive his answers. The... The Sadducees are left on their ear because Jesus just yanks the carpet out from everything that they are thinking in regard to this process. Now, from that, you know, some people start speculating, as I said, about angels and then about our condition once we enter the presence of the Lord. Are, are we not going to you know, even you know, know who our spouse was? Are we not going to see our loved ones? You know, is there going to be no relationship uh, there? I've spent a lifetime with this person. Listen, uh, we are going to be in a, uh, I was going to say, perfected state in the presence of the Lord. There's no chance that we're going to be less intelligent once we're in the presence of the Lord than we are right now. Uh, Surely we will have a, a complete and full knowledge of the person uh, that we have spent our life with here on earth. Uh, what there is to understand is that the relationship with the Lord is going to be so much greater than 
any relationship that we could have here on earth, that that will just be left as the obsolete. You know, yes, there will be remembrance. Yes, there will even be relationship and fulfillment in it. But when you have something that's so superior, uh, you know, the focus is just going to go away. You think, think about the things you've experienced in life uh, that way. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> my grandsons uh, found a red pickup Tonka truck, metal, little pickup truck. And uh, they thrift store, bring this thing home. They bring it home and like, no kidding, you know, I had that exact same, no, not that Barry truck, but I had that exact same truck as a child. And I was like, oh, that is really cool. Well, I'll tell you what, once the grandkids found out that I had that same truck when I was a kid, now that's the truck. Okay, you come, you come to my house and, wh- you know, where is Papa's pickup truck? And they go find that thing and they, they are enthralled with it. And I, and I remember how enthralled I was. With that, if you come over to my house and I'm playing with that Tonka truck all on my own, you're going to have concern, right? As a child, it was very important, very, very significant. And it is to my children now, you know, my, my grandchildren, it's very important. It's very significant to them. There will come a day where things in life are going to be far more significant. You'll even look back and think, how quaint, you know? That is nostalgic, and boy, don't I appreciate that pickup truck. And, uh, you know, whatever. But it it isn't as important as, you know, even the pickup truck I own today, right? Or, or, you know, that provides for my family and does lots of things. And, And that, you know, it pales in comparison to my grandkids, Right and my wife and all these things that are so much bigger today. We're going to enter the presence of the Lord and the things of this earth, including right that spousal relationship that is the most significant relationship you have on earth is going to pale in comparison to your relationship with the Lord. And listen, if that sounds discouraging to you, what you've got to put in your head is that's how amazing God is. It is, it is going to be the sort of thing that is, when that becomes yours in person, everything else is just going to sort of fade away. These guys have got this trickery all set up, and what they're, what they're doing is comparing themselves among themselves and acting like our religion is better than yours. Our denomination is better than yours. You know, the disciples are caught up in this, aren't they? I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, you want to go to church, you want to go to our church. You want to be part of uh, what word we... Look, is it the Lord? Is the Lord presently your God? And when you pass away, are you going to be in his presence? This whole nonsensical, immature, childish argument and discussion... Jesus just dismantles it and sweeps it aside. It's important that we understand that, listen, about ourselves, that we are Sadducees. 
We are Pharisees. We are disciples. And wow, are we hung up on ourselves. And the Lord is so much bigger than that. We need to just set all of that aside and understand that the relationship we have with him now and in the future is what we need to focus on. You know, you see somebody that, you know, is expressing immature things spiritually next to you. Don't get worried about that. You know, they're going to grow just like you did, right? Take a look at yourself. Look back at where you were. Uh, we get so dogmatic about, no, this I'm right. This is my thing. This is my pet subject, and I'm going to dwell on it. Everybody else should dwell on it the same way I'm dwelling on it, you know? My favorite five books of the Bible. Jesus is just going to brush all of that aside. Uh, I pray that we submit to that. That we, we throw ourselves upon the rock and we experience the breaking and the humility and the shattering that comes so that we can just rise above it and be useful to him. So this scribe, hearing this and seeing all of what just went on, he's infatuated and asks the question, which is the first commandment of all, the chief most important? But he, he words it in the Greek language in such a way to say, which type of commandment is greatest the spiritual ceremonial or the moral law because that's where the sadducees were focused is the moral aspects of the law of the scripture you know they don't believe in miracles they don't believe in angels they don't believe in all of these things that the scripture contains so this question sort of comes from that discussion of you know what's most significant here you know, the spiritual, the heavenly, the relationship with God, or the earthly, the moral conduct between me and other people. What should I be most concerned about in this? So he's posing a, a much more legitimate and a much more mature question. There is um, a, a church tradition that this scribe that asked this question became a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's possible. Given the question, the way that he responds and everything goes on. And you consider uh, those that we've seen, right? We have Joseph of Arimathea, who secretly is a follower. You have Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews, right? There are people all along the way. We hear after the resurrection that not a few of the priests became believers, so many of the priests became believers. So it stands to reason that that's possible, likely, that this is the case. So he asked the question. Jesus answered him in verse 29. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, now before we move on, that's a huge stumbling point for a lot of the other religions. I just mentioned Charles Taze Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons struggle uh, with this. Uh, you know, Muslims, Jews, uh, even people that are just coming from the secular world. You're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet you say there's one God. Like, like what is this? How does this work? You know, and they imply, oh, there's three gods, there's not one God. You know, misunderstanding what's said. So the scripture clarifies 
this, uh, and we'll we'll deal with that in just a moment. For the Jews that Jesus is speaking to, this is an understood concept, and it is immovable that there is no other God. There is one God, and it is Yahweh. Uh, Jehovah, some have translated it. Uh, you know, we we uh, you know today you can see it even here. Uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That was actually the result of the Jews. And some people you know ascribe that and say, oh, that was something that the King James scholars did, and they erased the name of God, which you know occurred in the Scripture in the Old Testament as Y H W H. Uh, no, that was actually the Jews that did that uh, because they considered the name of God so holy that they would not pronounce it out loud. So they would they would be reading through, and when they came to YHWH, they, they would sort of pause and just say the name and then keep reading on without ever having pronounced the name. And because at that time the uh, uh, Hebrew... Uh, only contained uh, consonants. The vowel sounds were understood based upon the construction of the consonants. Uh, as a result, the proper interpretation and pronunciation of YHWH was lost. So later, the Jews simply assigned uh, Lord and the Lord God uh, to that to signify this is where the name of God is and uh, we don't really know how to pronounce it. And they still held the concept that it was so holy that they, they were not allowed to speak it. Uh, you, you consider, you guys, that's how reverent they were about who God was. That to say his name was that far beyond human. That, that we should not even be given the privilege or the opportunity to speak his name. If that's confusing to you, I'll put a New Testament tag on it. When the apostles come and they say, teach us how to pray. And we commonly refer to it as the Lord's Prayer, where he says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The, the Lord's Prayer, right? It's really the disciples' prayer, because they say, teach us how to pray. And in that, he doesn't say, pray this literally, because just a few verses earlier, he says, do not pray with vain repetition, right? Have you ever been to a uh, Roman Catholic wedding? Uh, how many times do you say the Lord's Prayer in a, or a funeral? It's even, it's even bigger in a few. You say it literally like 23 times, you know, vain repetition, empty repeating. It becomes like an Eastern mystic mantra. You just say it over and over again. You know, you're not, your mind's not even getting, our Father, our in heaven, hallowed be the name of the kingdom come, the will be done. You know, just rattle it off. Hey, Jesus gives it to humanity as an outline. Pray like this. First, recognize who you're praying to, and then look how it's broken down on your own. I'm, I'm just focusing on the beginning point, which is hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be so holy that it is held in secret. Interesting. Yeah. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Guess what? We know what what God's name is. You know, Jesus. Right? 
You want to say it a little more accurately? Yeshua, right? You know, you want to put the English twist on it? Joshua, right? Who are we talking about? The one crucified for all the sins of humanity. That's who we're talking about. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is who we are talking about. Jesus Christ. So here, who is God? The Lord our God is one. Well, uh, you know, then the discussion comes of is Jesus God or is Jehovah God? Yes, that is correct. Right? I'll ask you, what portion of you is you? Your body? Ah, uh, you might say yes, but I think that probably your mind has more to do with who you are than your body. Right? Uh, realistically, in my mind, I'm somewhere around 15. You know what I'm saying? I just, just I don't know. I don't know. It's a weird thing that our brain does. Uh, what do I mean by that? You know, I, I'm finally getting to the place. I'm over 50 years old where I will look at something and say, I should not pick that up. I'm finally getting there. That actually occurred to my physical body when I was in my 30s. But I have spent more than 20 years going, I can handle it. And then I pay the cost, right? For, you know, it takes me 20 years to realize you don't have the body you did when you were young. My mind is functioning in a place different than my body is capable of, okay? Uh, who I am personality-wise has everything to do with my mind, little to do with my body. Oh, uh, body, soul, and spirit. You know, soul, personality, spirit, honestly, that which is given to us from God. The internal conflict where... My mind says, oh, I really want to eat this, right? And the Spirit says, you're going to pay the price for doing that. You're going to regret that. But I love pepperoni pizza, but it's 1230 at night. Well, I'll just wash it down with the soda. <laughs> that carbonation is going to contribute to the volcanic experience you're going to have as that acid reflux. And the debate goes on until usually the flesh wins. Convinces the mind, overrides the spirit. Right? You have different portions to yourself. Yet you are one. You are one. We see the separation in conflict at the Garden of Gethsemane. Most clearly. Well, really prior to that, right? At Jesus' baptism as John brings him up out of the water, and we hear the voice say from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then we see the Holy Spirit descend upon him. So very clear distinctions of separation there. But then in the garden, we have that strong representation where Jesus says, if there's any way, I'm paraphrasing, let this cup pass from me. Uh, but nevertheless, and here's the point, not my will be done, but your will be done. Indicating I have a will that is different than yours in this given moment. They are God, one in the same, 
But suddenly we see there is a distinction. There is a separation. Similar, I mean, I guess it's sort of sacrilegious to say, similar to my struggle with pepperoni pizza. There's a thing within me saying, don't do it. And there's another thing in me that's saying, I'm gonna. There's, there is a separation of will. There is a separation of thought process there. Uh, you know, there is a separation of will in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, a separation of thought process. Hebrews puts it this way. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, he being the brightness of his glory, that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. The expressed image, uh, the way it's written in the Greek language is the impressed image. Um, we, uh, you know, in the day, the picture that's being drawn is the idea of the signet ring where they would melt the wax and then the seal would be placed in it. And, and that was the symbol of authority of whoever had that ring. If it was a Roman governor, then he's, you know, putting his seal on the document to say this is an official Roman mandate. All the authority of Rome signified by this ring that I have been given by Rome is being impressed upon this document. Uh, so that's sort of what's being said there. More significantly, the way I've uh, recently begun to express it is uh, a few years ago, uh, there was, it's kind of a toy. Uh, it's like two layers of plastic and it's got this separation and there are uh, all these pins uh, in it and you like put your hand on it and, and it brings the impression of your hand out the other side. You know, if you're brave enough, you put your face on it and it would bring the impression of your face out. That's more accurately what's being said is that God took creation and he impressed himself Upon it, and Jesus was that impressed, expressed image of God. Jesus is God. Philip asks, right? Show us the Father. And Jesus says, "Have I been with you so long that you do not recognize me? He who has seen me has seen the Father." Jesus is God. Okay, so when Jesus is saying God is one, we, especially as New Testament Christians, shouldn't have any confusion about us. Oh, see, there we are again. What am I, What are we talking about? Are we talking God the Father, God the Son, God the... No, God is one, right? Be it the Holy Spirit, be it God the Father, be it Jesus, collectively combined or separate, there is only one God. That's it. Jesus is God. There's no way to separate these things and make it any other of that. You know, when people say, well, who are you talking about? Jehovah? Yes. The Holy Spirit? Yes. Jesus? Yes. Why? Because it's the same thing, right? You, you don't, you don't you say, uh, I was talking to Will this afternoon. Well, were you talking to his body? Yeah, I was talking to Will. Or were you talking to his mind? Right. You know what I'm saying? Maybe not. Who knows? You know what I'm saying? I just, with the Lord, with God, the Lord is one. And we should have no confusion about that at all. And when people try to pry and pick at that, you make sure that you have a very firm understanding within yourself. Even if you can't express it to them to the point where you convince them, you need to have a solid understanding.
of the Trinity and and who it is and what it is that you're talking about. So so you know that's important for the practical application of this, right? Uh, it's partially contained in the discussion with the scribe. But if I'm going to take this and say, okay, this is the most important commandment for Will Cass, then I, then I need this to apply to me, and I need to be able to absorb it. So first of all, the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment, the chief most important, right? Uh, yes, first, but but mo most importantly, he's talking about the most significant. Above anything else, this is the most important commandment. Now, Matt did a wonderful job this evening of talking about how much the Lord loves us and how our love is a response to that, right? Because in and of yourself, you can't be like, that's right, I'm getting up at 4.30 in the morning and I'm going to study the word for the first six hours of my day. Why? Because I'm going to love the Lord my God more than anybody else on the planet. I'm just, I, I'm making the commitment, you'll, you'll fail. You know, you, you probably won't even get up, you know, tomorrow. you get up at like the crack of noon, you know what I'm saying? You, you know, the, immediately our flesh fails. Immediately. When we say, I'm going to accomplish this spiritually, it's almost like the Lord says, oh, okay, let's watch. Go ahead. You know. Why? Because all of our spiritual strength is derived from him. His Holy Spirit. If you are an especially motivated, especially powerful, especially effective Christian, put credit where credit is due. That is the Lord working in your life. That, that is His strength and His power enabling us to do these things. And if you're thinking, well, I've just failed miserably over and over and over again, maybe because you relied upon your strength. Right? When the alarm clock goes off and you need to get up early and spend time in the word and your body just goes oh no way <laughs> that's when you pray and say this is who i am lord this is what i am right here this miserable heap that doesn't want to do what's good right and necessary please right here this this is where my devotion begins pour your spirit on me right now so that i can just put my feet on the floor, and begin the process of following you for today, right? You know, loving the Lord, why? Because as Matt said, it's responsive. He has done everything for us. You know, he has, he, look, you're sitting here tonight. How crazy is that? You know, some of us, you know, just go back six months. The thought that we'd be sitting in a church is an insane thought. Right? Others, we got to go back a year, two, 10, 20, 30 years ago when you were running amok and somebody said, You're going to be a very devout, you know, follower of Jesus Christ and attend church, you know, you know several times a week. You, you would have busted a stitch right there if they had told you that. And here you sit, right? Here you sit. The Lord has done a work. In your life. And he will continue to. As Philippians 1.6 says. He'll continue to. So this, this love of the Lord. Is responsive. Uh, to him. And you need to 
ever keep that in front of your eyes because we forget. We very quickly forget. Right? We, we, we get into the great abundance. We were reading this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and the nation of Israel is going to get into that place of great provision. Right, They were slaves in Egypt, and they've been delivered, and they've wandered through, and now they're about to cross over, and they're going to take possession of the land, and then they're going to grow and prosper and become incredibly fruitful and forget about God. You've got to, you've got to remember where you came from, and let's be blunt, the dirt bag that you were, and be very appreciative of what the Lord is and does and has given you now. If you lose sight of that, then you can pretty much guarantee you're going down in flames. It, it has to be that you focus upon what he has already done in your life. Then you will be capable of loving in response. So the first commandment, the greatest commandment. The second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. I have pointed out many times that we often, without even thinking, we put this in the negative, right? That guy made me really mad. And, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. So I didn't punch him in the face. So therefore, that equals my having done to my neighbor as I would have done to myself. No, the fact that you didn't do something bad doesn't equal you did something good, right? We, we need to measure it in the positive. What would you do for yourself, right? How much do you think about yourself? I always get into this weird tangent as I discuss this about how detailed I am about how much I love myself. I, I, I know exactly how all food should be prepared. Exactly how. I know exactly how coffee should be brewed. You don't. I do. <clears throat> Why? Because when I get it and I drink it, I go, it's just a little too hot. It's just a little too cold. It doesn't have quite enough of this. It needs a little more of that. All according to my standard. Why? Because I love me. I'm way hung up on me, on how things should be prepared, how things should be, you know, everything around me. Constantly I have this attitude. You know, the Lord is delivering me from this. But, but, but here's the thing. Do I study my neighbor that way? How much do they like these things? What do they want? How, to, how, what can, how can I best serve this person? Do we keep it in the positive? Do, right? Do. Not a matter of, don't punch him, because <laughs> then you've done with the Lord. No, do, right? And where does this apply first, right? Especially in our home, you know. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Am I mindful of that dear woman and all of the details there? And, and if I am, am I just doing it for her? Or am I doing it in such a way that I hope she recognizes this and reciprocates to me? Because very often, the motivation robs us of even doing the good. We're focused on the wrong end of things. Completely, our flesh can take over every situation. See, now, if you're thinking, like, it's way too complex. You just expose so much in my mind, I'm never going to be able to do this. 
Okay, well, here's the thing. If you'll back up into the first commandment, then the second one just comes as a result. If you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, then you don't have to worry about those details. It will be a response. You know, when we're younger especially, but it happens to all people whether we want to admit it or not. When we hang out with people, we adopt things from them within ourselves. Phrases and thoughts and attitudes and things that belong to them become ours, you know, and stuff that is from us, they pick up on, they begin to do. If you will hang out with God, you will become more like him. If you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, then you will love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's not something that you have to, okay, like, okay, i got to draw this diagram out. Now, how am I going to love my neighbor in the way that I love myself? You'll never accomplish that. You, you'll screw it all up somehow or another. Trust me. You know how I know? You're involved. Right? We're sinful. We're weak. We're corrupt. If we will make this the key of our lives and we will focus on this, then the other elements fall into place. Focus on your relationship with the Lord. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. And this isn't the idea of you've passed the test. Very good. (laughs) That is the correct answer. I give you a gold star. It's the idea of uh, it struck him in such a way. Uh, tell me you've been to church and you know somebody preaches a verse or a sermon in, in such a way that you've heard it a gajillion times in your life, but on that particular occasion, you're like, no way. You know, the conversation you had on the way to church or what you've been going through in life or just the moment or just the way it was phrased, it sticks with you. And you're like, I get that. And that's what's going on right here. This man is saying that, is, oh man, you've nailed it on the head. I mean, how complex, right? I did a whole bunch of explanation around the circumstance. Jesus just quotes two verses and the guy's like, wow. That, that needs to be the way it is. Uh, you know, John Corson years ago uh, at a pastor's conference, a Calvary Chapel pastor, he admonished us that when we teach, Uh, We should always look to make sure that what we deliver has uh, the milk, the meat, and the manna. And I was struck by that. You know, that which is easy to digest, the milk, the meat, that which you're going to have to leave here and really chew on and digest and take into yourself, and the manna, that which didn't come from you, pal, had to have been delivered by the Lord. You know what? I, I would much rather that my milk and my meat were also manna and, and that the whole of the thing were, in fact, from God. Yeah, I hope that is the case. I think that's what we're seeing here is the scribe responding that way. Of, wow, you, you just nailed everything. So well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding with all the soul, with all the strength, 
and to love one's neighbor as itself, as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, could follow all of these, uh, you know, examples and still not accomplish, uh, you know, go through all the rituals, go through all the religion, and you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, don't love your neighbor as yourself, like a big deal. You got, you got a lot of tradition, you got a lot of ritual, you got all these different things in this situation. I, years ago, um, you know, there's an old expression, uh, you don't know what's in a sponge until you squeeze it. You know, you've probably done that. Picked up the sponge off the back of the sink and, you know, go to wring it out and like the bacon grease comes out between your fingers. Like, oh, you know, just uh, under pressure. Uh, you know, you get squeezed, what comes out, right? I, I was with a, a pastor years ago, and uh, we walked into a building uh, together, and uh, I was already, I had not met him before. This is the first time I met him, and I was already questioning a number of things about the circumstances. We walked in, and we're like 10 steps inside the door, and he realizes that we're walking on freshly laid wax, like the janitor crew is in this building waxing the floor, and we've just walked in on their wax job. That guy broke into a cursing a blue streak. I mean, the, the foul language that came out of his mouth astonished me. Just it, it, Lori was with me. It, it shocked us both. We just, you know, under pressure, what came out? Right, you know, have all the religion you want to in the world. Uh, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Is this what's in you? If you're under pressure, is that what comes out of you? Is your relationship with God? Uh, don't be discouraged, right? If that's in you, right? If it's the sponge, what do you do? You have soap or some really hot water, put it in there, clean the thing out, right? So it is with you, you know, word of God into your life, continuously flowing. Just put yourself under the stream, man, and let it purify you. If you can say that of yourself right now, again, don't be discouraged. Just know there's your condition and let Christ deliver you. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, uh, that we shouldn't confuse that either. Like Jesus isn't like, oh, I get the gold star. Awesome. You know, when he saw the reaction, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Uh, but after that, no one dared question him. So this is a summary of all of these occasions we've seen previously, right? He comes into the temple, flips over tables, you know, confronts, they, you know, he's been declared the Messiah as he came in the triumphal entry. And you now, by what authority do you do these things in the confrontation after confrontation after confrontation? And he silences uh, the scribe, uh, the Sadducee, and then he answers the scribe in this situation. And everybody realizes, like, there's no contending with this guy. You can't, you know, none of us has an angle where we can come in and, uh, you know, catch this guy off guard. I think that's uh, something else for us to consider. Uh, very often people will say, oh, the Bible, it's full of contradictions, right? Uh, I, I, when people have said that to me, 
I, I, I've gotten used to being like, you know, quick on the draw. Uh, they'll say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Show me one, I immediately say. R right while it's still hanging in the air. That's going to come out of your mouth? Prove it. Bible's full of contradictions. Show me one. Okay. I have only once in 30 plus years of doing that to people, and I've had many occasions to do that to people. Most of the time, the answer that follows is, you know, that's what I've heard. <laughs> There's never an answer on the other hand. The only time someone says that it was an inmate at Hancock County Jail. And he said, well, uh, I've always been confused by the fact that the Old Testament says, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus said in the New Testament, turn the other cheek. And I was able to explain to him that the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was putting limitations on retaliation. Because previous to that, if you got in a fight and knock somebody's tooth out, well, they gather up their whole clan, come to your house, kill all of your cattle, kill you, burn your house to the ground. Jesus, you know, Old Testament is saying, look, if somebody knocks your tooth out, the worst you can do is go have their tooth knocked out. You can, you can only equal in response. You can't go beyond that. And then Jesus is by extension saying, and you can go further if they slap you across the face. It's okay to let them slap the other side of your face. Which, in case you were wondering, the second hit is worse because the first one comes from this side, and when the backhand comes, right, all those knuckles on the back of your face. So, you know, he's saying it's okay to take abuse. It's okay. It's okay to let somebody knock your tooth out. It's okay. You don't, you don't have to retaliate, which is really what the Lord was saying in the Old Testament. You don't have to go kill their whole clan and burn their house to the ground. Grace, right? Grace. It provided me an opportunity to teach that guy a lesson, and he was very grateful uh, for the understanding. But that whole attitude of, you know, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. People always have a lot to say. Be faithful to meet them right there in the moment and say, you know, you explain yourself. You say the Bible's full of contradictions. You explain. You say the Bible was written by men. What do you mean by that? You, you say the Bible has been changed over time. What do you mean by that? Because none of those things are true. None of those things are true. If we will be more faithful to answer the critics, quickly what happens is they shut their mouth. They, they no longer contradict. They back away from these situations. Right? We all by now should know what the bullies are like, right? And they're trying to win the whole crowd over to themselves. All it takes to defeat a bully is a little bit of boldness. right? You don't even have to be as strong as the bully. They've just never had anybody stand up and oppose them. Stand up. Say the things that need to be said. The Lord will bless the process. Amen?